0: This episode is brought to you by The Grinning Goat, Canada's vegan fashion boutique with a storefront in Calgary and an online store that ships across Canada and worldwide. As a Paw & Order podcast listener, you can save 15% on your entire purchase at grinninggoat.ca simply using the code PAW15 at checkout.
1: This is another iRaw podcast. We podcast to make the world a better place for animals. In the Canadian justice system. Animals' interests are rarely represented, but the lawyers at Animal Justice fight to give them a voice in court and the political system. This is the Pawn Order Podcast, and these are their stories.
2: Hello and welcome to episode 87 of the Paw and Order podcast. I am your co-host Jessica Scott-Reed and I am once again joined by one of our favorite guest co-hosts, animal lawyer, staff lawyer with Animal Justice, Caitlin Mitchell. Hi Caitlin, welcome hey, back. Thanks for having me back. Love having my fellow Manitoban here on the show. Uh, Caitlin and I have probably both been very much enjoying the lovely Winnipeg summer weather here.
3: Um, what have you been up to? I actually got to go to my family cottage this past weekend it oh. was really nice and we actually swam in Lake Winnipeg in the beginning of June it was surprising but like really really nice definitely like a little cold but but yeah like I I thought that the, the river or sorry, the, the lake was gonna be freezing because it was there was still ice on it two weeks ago but it was beautiful yes
2: welcome to Manitoba where you can have snow <laughs> one week and be in the water the next week that's definitely that's Winnipeg for Well, I'm glad Ah. to hear that. Definitely uh, enjoying the summer weather here in Winnipeg. And later on the show, we're going to have another fellow Manitoban, uh, Dr. Jason Hannon is joining us. He is a professor at the University of Winnipeg. He teaches, among others, a class called Rhetoric of Animality, which sounds so fascinating. He's also the co-chair of Winnipeg VegFest, and he is the editor and author of recently published book, Meat Splaining: the Animal Agriculture Industry and the Rhetoric of denial. So that is going to be a great conversation. Stay tuned for that. Uh, Before we get started, Caitlin, let's remind our listeners to leave us a review, add to our more than 150 five-star reviews. And in fact, we have a record five new five-star reviews. Our producer Shannon says it's likely a record for reviews, five-star reviews left between shows. Uh, So shout out to Camille and Peter for obviously knocking it out of the park with the last one. Uh, I have a couple here. I'm going to choose this really great one to read. Um, This is from C. Lynn 97, uh, it's entitled Excellent Source of Info. Love this podcast. Not only is this an under topic, but the hosts are great at creating a friendly dialogue while still providing a balanced and thorough account of the facts. With other media, I'm sometimes left feeling like I'm only getting the side of the story that aligns with the host's viewpoint, but this has never been the case with Power & Order. They even take care to recommend additional resources for listeners to check out to help inform their own opinion. Also, the hosts do a fantastic job of keeping an upbeat and optimistic attitude when discussing difficult topics without dismissing the gravity these issues deserve.
3: What a fabulous review. Thank you, c P97. Nice. Well, congratulations, guys. You're, gooding, you're doing a great job on the show. Um, yes. And we all also wanted to remind listeners that you can support us for as little as a dollar per month on Patreon. And welcome to two of our new Patreon supporters, Kaylee Phillips and Danu LaRoche. So just a reminder also, there's Patreon prize tiers. So $5 gets a mailed card to say thanks, as always. Uh, But now you also get a paw and order sticker too, which is very exciting. I have not seen these stickers. (laughs) Uh, $20 gets you uh, your choice between an official paw and order mug or t-shirt. Um, but we also have t-shirts available for anyone now too. So if you can go to shop.animaljustice.ca and anyone that supports us at $10 a month or more gets a 15% discount on our online store. Yay! <laughs>
2: Uh, So moving on to the news, we do have a few great news stories to talk about here. Um, The first up was a big study um, about the methane emissions from animal farming in Canada and the U.S. and how they could be much higher than reported. Of course, I know uh, a number of environmental researchers who have been saying this for a long time. Shout out to Nicholas Carter, my go-to guy for uh, this sort of topic. But this is a new joint study by New York University and Johns Hopkins University that found that the bottom bottom method, which is the the usual standard method of measuring methane emissions. Um Using Canada and the United States does not properly reflect emissions in the atmosphere, meaning there could be between thirty percent and ninety percent higher emissions than what is already being recorded. So my understanding, Caitlin, is that the what they call the bottom-up method uh, essentially is measuring from the cow uh, how much methane is being emitted per cow, and then counting the amount of cows, and then that's how they basically get the number. I'm sure it's probably more complicated than that. And then now they're saying that there's now a top-down method. Where Where there's actually um, different measures, instruments of measurement that actually go up into the atmosphere and take into account the emissions above a certain area within the atmosphere. So then you get the account of not only the animals, but then also say their manure pits, right? Am I getting that right? I know you have an environmental background. Does that sound
3: about right? Well, I have an environmental law background. It's sadly not (laughs) an environmental (laughs) science background. So yeah, when I read this, I was really interested. Um, And yeah, I think I have about the same understanding as you. So I think bottom up means that They basically say, okay, how much Um, does a cow emit on average and then they add up all the cows. Yeah, yeah. And then the the top-down looks, they can go and actually like measure the amount of greenhouse gases in the sky and then they trace that back to the ground. So that's interesting because I had no idea that there are these two different ways. So it sounds like my take from the article is that they need to figure out a way to kind of merge these two and that doing that will probably be the most accurate number. Yes, that's what they say. That's, That's probably the truth is somewhere kind of in the middle. But it's interesting because
2: this is always so highly debated between you know, the environmental and animal advocacy world and the agricultural world, everyone trying to sort of say that it's one way or it's the other. And it sounds like right now, the numbers we have on record aren't accurate either way. Uh, And I'm sure that this is going to ruffle the feathers of the animal egg world for sure.
3: Yeah, and it's pretty terrifying because I mean, we already know that like based on existing estimates, meat and dairy uh, probably account for at least 14.5% of global greenhouse gas emissions to just so sort of like to think that that number is even higher is is pretty scary um and it's also pretty disappointing because in Canada we're not really doing that much right now to really tackle agricultural like emissions other than you know taxing fuel on farms but that's not really getting at these biological sources so um yeah it's definitely food for thought and hopefully policymakers are seeing this as well yes I hope that it can be sort of landed upon because this you
2: know 14 um, percent of all global emissions coming from animal agriculture has sort of been the mainstay statistic whereas you know you know, I've heard different parties um, say it could be as high as 52% yeah. um, and but that it's likely land somewhere around 32%. Um, but I know as a writer, editors right now won't really let me say higher than the 14%, which already we know is um, more than the combination of all... Uh, transport sectors on earth already so it already is so horrible Uh, but yeah definitely getting to the bottom of what the truth is hopefully will uh, inspire and motivate policy change so let's see where this one goes okay and our next story uh, is an interesting one out of Calgary Uh, a number of uh, bylaws pet bylaws have changed some of them sort of seeming a bit questionable the the main headline for the story is in relation to backyard hens but Caitlin there's actually a lot of things going on including for for dog owners, dog fosters. What did you think of
3: all of these different bylaw changes in Calgary? Yeah, it's a lot to keep track of and some of it, um, yeah, like some of it, as you said, it sounds like sort of reasonable and some of it um, I didn't really understand. Like there's a reference to people keeping pigeon colonies, for instance, Mm. and like, I didn't even know that that was a thing. Um, But yeah, so I mean, so the, one of the the parts that we're a bit concerned about is that the bylaw says that they are going to issue up to 100 licenses to be granted to Calgary households for the keeping of backyard chickens. And my understanding is each household could then have up to four chickens each. And backyard chickens are really interesting because it seems to me like a lot of the impetus for it arises from people wanting to not support factory farming of chickens. So there's like an an interesting desire there, which which I get, you know, know, I'm vegan, so I'm not eating eggs, but I understand that there are are people who choose to consume eggs and they want to do so in a way that doesn't... And support factory farming, but it's still pretty troubling. So when you look, for instance, at Montreal um, shelters, immediately saw a rise in the number of abandoned chickens that they were tasked with taking care of. Once Montreal uh, chicken keeping started to take off, so it's it's a bit of an alarming trend, and it'll be interesting to see if we still see the same thing in Calgary because you know not everyone really thinks through all that backyard egg production and entails, and of course these animals are still being confined in cages. And then there's also the question of what do you do with your chicken if you are you're keeping these chickens just for their eggs, and at a certain point, after two to three years, they're going to stop producing eggs. So that's another thing that I'm not sure that everyone's thinking through is what are they going to do. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And unfortunately, my understanding is that not everyone wants to keep the chickens around as a pet for the remaining, you know, up to ten years or more. These these animals can live. So um, it's definitely a really big issue, and, and we're pretty concerned to see Calgary moving and this direction. Yeah, there's a lot of questions around
2: backyard eggs. A lot of people, you know, like you said, are interested in and ask me, well, what's wrong with it? And another thing that I always bring up for people is where are these chickens coming from? Yeah. Uh, the majority of the time, vast majority of the time, they're coming from the exact same industry that still culls, you know, billions of quote, useless uh, baby male chicks. They're, they're they're the same breeders that are making backyard chickens that they are making chickens uh, to lay eggs, uh, lay eggs for the industrial sector. So commercial sector. Uh, So there's a lot of things that are going wrong with that. And I have a chicken. Did you know I have a chicken? No. So I have a rescued chicken named Pumpkin who lives at the Good Place Animal Sanctuary because I'm not keeping a chicken in my
3: backyard. Okay, yeah. I I remember seeing the story about Pumpkin, but when you said that you have a chicken, I was envisioning in your house. So
2: I I help pay for her care and I like to tell people I have a chicken, but she does live at the Good Place Animal Sanctuary just outside of Winnipeg. She was a backyard chicken uh, living in a suburban neighborhood here in Winnipeg that wasn't uh, zoned for it. She and her other chicken friend had escaped from the backyard, uh, from the home. And the first one was spotted and the people in the neighborhood called the city and the chicken was picked up. And our friend uh, Brittany at the Winnipeg Humane Society reported to me that she had no idea what happened to this chicken. So if the Humane Society didn't get word of it, very likely the chicken was euthanized. So I told my cousin who lived in the area who saw the first chicken, I said, "When you see another chicken, you don't call the city, you call me. And I've written a whole story about this, about how real animal advocates know you don't necessarily call the authorities when you're talking about an animal that isn't a dog or a cat. When it comes to a wild animal or, or a farmed animal, you call your local, in our case here in Winnipeg, the chicken lady, and she helped me capture pumpkin and get her to the sanctuary instead of the fate of her other little friend. So there's a lot of problems around backyard chickens for sure. And yeah. I also I found another interesting point in this article about the bylaws in Calgary. They said now that they are capping the maximum allowable dogs per owner I think was six. And that includes six dogs at the dog park. You're allowed to have six off leash dogs per person at the dog park. That does not sound safe.
3: Yeah, I know. Um, I know in Toronto, it's been an issue with like dog walkers taking mm-hmm. so many dogs to the dog park that they can't really keep track of them. And like, in fact, we stopped bringing um, my dog to the dog park in Toronto for, for various reasons, but, but that was one of them. There are just so many problems. So, um, so yeah, like I'm not really sure what other cities do in terms of a cap, but I agree. Six seems like, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. A lot for one person. Mm-hmm. But um, but yeah, and, and with the the chicken incident, it's interesting too, because my I used to live at Queen and Bathurst in Toronto. So for people listening, you understand that's like a pretty urban intersection. Um, and this was like probably more than 10 years ago at this point. But I had neighbors who kept backyard chickens at the time, which mm-hmm. I'm assuming was illegal. Um, but yeah, one day their chickens got out too. And I had to uh, corral them down the back lane oh, at Queen scary. and Bathurst. Um, and sadly, I brought them back to the neighbor at the time because I didn't know what to do. I didn't want them to get killed and I didn't want them to get euthanized. And so I, I tried to speak to the neighbor after, but anyway, it was, it was a pretty upsetting incident because yeah, it just sort of underscores that there's so many risks when you're going to keep them in the city. Uh, and I don't think everyone's really thought them through.
2: Yeah, that's a good point. And you know what, let's just put it out there for our listeners now. If you ever spot an escaped farmed animal, um, don't call the authorities. I'm, I'm going to put this right out there. I take all credit for it. Um, call your local animal rescuers, local animal save group they will know who to call they will know where the animals can go that will be safe so that's that's the hot tip of the day (laughs) (laughs) all right moving on to the next story um this was a great one. I don't know how to say the name of this publication, Caitlin. It's a BC publication called, is it called the tyee so? T-Y-E-E. Uh, I've seen a number of uh, great po- uh, works from them. And this is this is another great one. It's a profile of our friend Elizabeth Ormandy um, about her work at the Canadian Society for Humane Science, which is a first of its kind Canadian organization dedicated to promoting non-animal alternatives in teaching, research, and testing in Canada. So what Elizabeth does is very complimentary to what Dr. Taru does at the University of Windsor. We just had her on a couple episodes ago. Um, she's doing the more scientific uh, end of it, developing these um, alternative methods, whereas Elizabeth's doing a lot more of the advocacy work, really working in schools. Um, I know they do a lot of advocacy against taking um, dissection animals out of schools, really great stuff. So this article uh, talks about Bill C-28, which I know you have a lot to say on. Um, so she, it says that she joins many other animal rights advocates in watching closely the progress of Bill C-28 unveiled in April by Environment and Climate Change Canada, the first update to the Canadian Environmental Protection Act in two decades. The CEPA amendment would seek to quote reduce, refine, or replace the use of vertebrate animal testing when assessing the risks that substances may pose on human health and environment. Um, Ormandy and others say it's long overdue, but that Canada lags behind other nations and needs to do much more. And in joint statement with Animal Justice and Humane Canada and the Canadian Society for Humane Science applauded the move as an important step in ending the painful and often deadly practice, practice of toxicity testing involving tens of thousands of animals each year in Canada. So Caitlin, what were your thoughts um, on the bill and uh, on this great article?
3: Yeah, it's so nice to see Elizabeth getting that kind of spotlight because mm-hmm. she's uh, she's just such a smart and effective advocate and it's a pleasure she is. to work with her. Um, but but Bill C-28 is really, really exciting. And I, but I'm not sure if you know, but actually I used to work on SIPA, um, so the Canadian Environmental Protection Act. I used to work on SEPA reform issues um, in my previous life as an environmental lawyer, actually. Because um, SEPA is Canada's toxics law, basically. And as you said, it hasn't been uh, updated in more than 20 years. So uh, it desperately needs to be strengthened. But what's really interesting is that when you strengthen, a toxics law, and this has happened in other places too, like the European Union and, and in the United States, when you strengthen your toxics law, what you are doing in, in practice, and it's more than this, but this is to simplify, you're saying, okay, com- companies, you, know, you need to provide us with more evidence to prove to us that your product or this chemical is going to be safe. But that can actually result in more tests on animals, of course. So what we're trying to do is to make sure that Bill C-28 actually does strengthen SEPA, which is desperately needed to protect the environment and human health. Um, and I would say to promote environmental justice because it's disproportionately marginalized communities and indigenous communities who are impacted by toxics in a lot of ways. So it's a really important bill, but we want to do it in a way that doesn't inadvertently result in you know, skyrocketing rates of animal testing. And as I said, other places have done this. So um, it's really nice to be working with Elizabeth on this and, and hopefully we'll see Canada move in the right direction because certainly um, there's some really great Examples in the U.S., for instance, the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency, is actually committed to ending toxicity testing on mammals um, by 2035. So, we'd really like to see Canada also adopt uh, an ambitious target there as well.
2: Yeah. So, how do you think that th- this is going to pan out? Sort of based on how these things
3: have gone in the past. So, you sound hopeful. Are you realistically hopeful? Yeah, I'm hopeful. Like, so he, so the the pragmatist in me would say this: this bill is not going to become law um, in this session of government. I don't think. I would like to be wrong on that. I really wrong on that. But, um, you know, we're, we're kind of nearing probably an election. So I think um, the bill is a really good starting point. And I hope that if we have a new parliament, that we would see this bill introduced again, but maybe introduced in a bit of a stronger way. Because right now, um, basically, the, the language that we're so excited about is in the preamble, which is important. It's kind of the principles for the statute. But the principles aren't really the binding requirements in the Act. So what we want to see is take those principles and take some action on them. So actually put in requirements in the act to, you know, eliminate unnecessary toxicity testing on animals to make sure companies are sharing data um, and then accompany that by funding and support for the development of non-animal methods. Because, you know, of course Mm -hmm. we can't um, make that transition overnight, um, but, you know, toxicity tests on animals are really, really painful. these These are tests that are done specifically to see, for instance, how much of this chemical Will cause death. How much of this chemical exposure will cause you know skin irritation and injury? Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's really painful stuff. So um, it's great to see other places doing a lot to move away from it, including you know in their laws. And um, you know, as I said, like Canada is so behind right now. So the good news is because we're so behind, we have these other models now we can look to. We don't have to reinvent Ah, uh, good things. point. Um, yes. So that's nice. But you know, of course, it's sad that it's taken us so long. Yeah, that's a good point. We have all the examples
2: we need. Need because this is really, these are sort of the quintessential stereotype pictures we see of, you know, the rabbit with the irritated eyes. You know, that's really the type of testing that we're talking about here. Stuff that really, really needs to go. So I'm glad that you're hopeful and that we have a little bit of pragmatic hope there too. That's good. That's yeah, good. Yeah.
3: Well, and I said, I really hope I'm wrong. I hope that, you know, there's another episode of Palm Order in the future where I have to mm. eat my words and say that I was wrong and it actually did come into law. <laughs> let's hope. But yeah. Well, let's like hope. We,
2: we will keep that episode open for you, Caitlin. (laughs) I love to see you eat your words. So now we're going to move on to our main topic of the show. We're going to have a conversation with Dr. Jason Hannon. He's a professor, a researcher, an author. He's co-chair of Winnipeg VegFest and a valuable resource for my work. Uh, welcome, Jason. We're so uh, happy to have you on Pawn Order. Well,
1: thank you so much for having me.
2: So before we jump into um, talking about your amazing book and your amazing perspectives on so many things that you and I have already talked so many times about, um, first, I want want to know about this class, the rhetoric of animality, because I took the uh, rhetoric and communications program at U of W. That's my bachelor's degree. But this class was not offered when I went there. And you were to teach there. And I'm so glad to see that this even exists. So maybe you could just tell us a little bit more about what this class is.
1: Yeah, sure. So the class initially began as just a, a one time experimental course. Uh, that was held in conjunction with uh, Jane Goodall's visit to the university in 2015. Ah. So there was a special institute, and um, because I'm a big uh, fan of Jane Goodall, I was asked to create a special course as a one-time offering. revolving around uh, animals and i had guest speakers every week and we covered some really fun material that was new for me and i had so much fun with it my students had so much fun with it that i just decided why don't i introduce this as a permanent course on the books and so my chair was excited everybody's excited and so we put it in the paperwork and it passed Um, So, yeah, it's basically um, a look at um, the the history of Western attitudes towards animals, beginning with ancient philosophy and religion and then looking at... Um, you know, the medieval period and then the modern period and just looking at um, the way that we justify um, uh, human power and domination and disregard of animals. Uh, And then the kinds of challenges that come to that perspective from, you know, uh, radical groups, right? So we look at um, novels, we look at uh, documentaries, we look at some uh, essays, we look at some scholarly books, and um, I feed my students vegan pastries at the end of the term. (laughs)
2: <laughs> That's amazing! So it's been going on for th- for this many years now, and so your book, was your book sort of born out of your experience teaching this class, or was it a separate thing?
1: Yeah, it was uh, connected to the class, and then also connected to VegFest, uh, and then also just my experience um, as an audience member uh, at different um, events uh, about animals, where invariably there was always someone in the audience um, from that world Mm. um, from the farming world who Insisted on challenging the authority of um, vegans and animal rights activists to speak about um, animal farming, uh, and it was always the same kind of pattern. It was very predictable, and then I started noticing the same thing in the you know um, uh, talking points from uh, you know the meat industry, and then online. It just it was just this very kind of consistent, predictable um, pattern. And so then I thought, okay, something we we, we need a name for this. Um, and then we need to explore this in some detail. And so that's how the book came about.
2: Wow. Okay. So let's talk a bit about the book. So it's called meat explaining the animal agriculture industry and the rhetoric of denial. Um, so for those who may have not have partaken of it yet, and I highly suggest you do, it's a collection of works from academics and activists, which is really cool um, that investigate the many forms of denialism perpetuated by the animal agriculture industry. The book asks and explores what strategies the industry uses to avoid questions about inhumane treatment of animals and its impact on the environment and public health. Also, the narratives, myths, and fantasies it promotes in order to sustain its image in the public. So in the introduction, you write about the media industry being in a massive PR battle, and you and I have spoken of this um, in a piece we did together for Sentient Media, and you identify three current threats to the industry, uh, moral, environmental and biomedical threats. Tell us a little bit more about that.
1: Part of the challenge in, in, in even coming up with this concept was uh, trying to find an analog to uh, climate denialism, uh, mm. clim- climate change uh, denialism and then the attack on climate science which is uh, a very kind of uh, singular um, uh, focus and discourse, right? It's just, it just focuses on, um, on on one type of denialism. It's a little more complicated in this case for, for the meat industry because there are three different forms of denialism, right? There's, first of all, the denial of the horrific abuse of animals, Um, you know, humane washing and all that sort of thing. And then there's the denial of the, you know, disastrous impact of the meat industry on the environment. So that's the second type of denial. Um, And then the third is to deny the awful effects of animal products on human health. Um, and each of these has its own kind of distinct, uh, um, you know, discourse, but they're still kind of connected to one another. So I came up with the idea of meat splaining as a sort of um, umbrella concept um, uh, to, to try to capture each one of these different forms of, uh, uh, of, uh, of denialism.
2: Wow! Wow! So, Caitlin, you had a chance to look over some of the book. What, what were some of your thoughts?
3: Yeah, um, I'm so excited to read the whole thing. Um, one of the things that was occurring to me when I was reading it is you talk a lot about the strategies that industry has to use to respond to these perceived threats. And it occurred to me, mostly because like what I do all day, every day lately is egg egg laws and responding to them. It occurred to me that that's sort of a new strategy that we're seeing in Canada. Um, and I know that your book was published in 2020. Um, But at that time, egg-egg laws were still kind of a new thing here. And certainly we didn't have one in Manitoba yet. So I guess I'm curious about what you think about that. Like, is it, obviously it's super frustrating, but in some ways I see it almost as um, maybe not quite a victory, but like uh, an illustration of how well we're doing. And I mean, we, you know, all of us and working in different ways at at shining a light, right, on, on some of this animal suffering. And so the need for... Industry and government to push back and create laws to make it harder and even illegal to document that suffering, um, sort of tells me that they see it as a pretty big threat. So I guess if you were writing the book today, you know, is do you, what do you think about gag egg laws and and how they play into some of the the systems and the threats that you identify in your books?
1: Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. So so uh, the book is by no means uh, exhaustive, uh, and so we were it partly. Um, at the mercy of the range of contributors who were each bringing their own area of expertise. So this book was only meant to be a conversation starter we could probably do several more volumes. And I would like to do a part two to the book. And if we do, then I would love to have uh, both of you as contributors. Um, you're mm-hmm. absolutely right. Um, Ag gag laws are one of the fiercest weapons of, of the meat industry. And the way that that works is they basically frame us as, a, again, a kind of threat, right? We're basically, we're, we're some kind of um, uh, uh, terrorist threat. And that's that's one terrorist
3: sort of- Terrorist was, that, that word was literally used last week at the Bell Citro. Five committee hearings, terrorists. Mm. Yeah,
1: yeah, that's just this, this is just sort of, um, uh, I would say, vintage classic uh, meat splaining. Um, making the oppressor out to be the victim and then making those who stand up for justice, those who are the voices of animals, um, making us out to be the bad guy. And, and I mean, the use of the word terrorist just gives you um, a sense of their extreme uh, desperation, cynicism. Um, and I think just complete disregard for um, for fact and logic and truth, right? Mm-hmm. They're willing really to the take reality and turn it completely upside down, which is, um, I think, just a, a testament to their lack of ethics. So, so yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. Um, uh, we would, we could probably do an entire book on ag laws. Uh, another one that they've um, seized upon recently is trying to clamp down on what kind of terminology we can mm-hmm. use. We're not allowed to use the word milk. We're not allowed to use the word cheese. We're not allowed to use the word meat. Um, in, in Europe, they've, they have a really aggressive campaign about this sort of thing. You can't say veggie burgers now. You have to say mm-hmm. veggie discs. Uh, and you can't say, um, you know, almond milk. It has to be almond beverage. You know, yeah, beverage or food. Yeah. Or like yeah. <laughs> so, so I mean, I mean, uh, on the one hand, on the one hand, this kind of thing is is incredibly annoying and frustrating. On the other hand, I think um, we should feel good about the fact that um, they they feel threatened because mm-hmm. it means that we're having an impact, and it means that as a force. Uh, As a a, a cultural force, as a political force, we're growing and they wouldn't be resorting to such extreme measures if they didn't feel genuinely threatened. And all they're really threatened by is our moral argument. That's it. Mm
3: -hmm. Well, and like you think about the 90s, right? As a vegetarian in the 90s, no one cared what Eves was calling their fake meat products at that time. Good point. That's a a good point. Point. They didn't really see them as a threat, right? But now we have this like vast plethora that's you know taking over parts of that market. So I can see that it's certainly an emerging threat if you're on the other side and you're trying to market animal products.
1: And it's For completely it's completely um, inconsistent and contradictory. I mean, um, they're not putting a ban on the term coconut milk. Right. Or um,
2: coconut meat, for that matter.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Or, or, you know, the concept of, uh, you know, sweet meats. Right. Um, so they're very, very selective about what it is that they will ban. And, you know, I mean, if, if if how 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 far do they want to go? Right? Do we start banning the word eggplant? It's just it's just ridiculous.
2: Mm-hmm. So another one of these um, areas of of strategies that we like you're speaking about, something you and I've have talked about in the past for different articles is the marketing. Uh, you and I uh, talked about Febudary for a piece for Planet Friendly News. And another one um, that's really growing in popularity now is grass-fed beef, which is an issue you take great... great issue with uh in your book uh, and you and i've spoken about it for sentient media talking about a and w's campaign in particular i'm just going to read a quick um excerpt from this piece from sentient media uh that you say uh, the idea that the land needs the cattle is not just pseudo scientific bunkum it feeds the dangerous fantasy that by eating beef you're somehow helping the environment when that's the complete opposite of reality and that you say that this is a prime example, as you describe in the book, of magical thinking, the full-blown promise of ecological and humanitarian salvation perpetuated by the likes of Alan Savory, uh, Savory who we've talked about on this podcast before. Um, so I know that, and you say it's the uh, idol- idolatry of the cow, right? So this, this placing of the cow now, as I've called it, the silver bullet, as if the victim is actually going to become the savior. Uh, talk a little bit more about that.
1: Yeah, it's really strange. Um, They've invested. I mean, this 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 began this began uh, among a group of farmers, right? This idea that um, cows can save the planet, right? Mm -hmm. People like um, Alan Savory, who's the um, the son of colonial administrators um, from Zimbabwe, and then also. Um, uh, Joel Salatin in uh, in the U.S. in Virginia, he's another big proponent of uh, of this this you know idea that you know the cows can can restore the land, um, and and so it then got adopted by it then got adopted by some very big name uh, you know mega corporations like Cargill and uh, General Mills and so forth. But but you know the the the, the farming community that really takes this stuff seriously. They believe that there is something magical about the stomach of a cow, right? That by by, by eating grass um, and then by the uh, uh, through the uh, the multi-chamber stomach um, uh, processing and fermenting the grass, it will lead to some sort of magical poop, um, which yeah. then gets you know dug into the ground through their hooves, and that uh, and that this will. Um, you know, regenerate the soil and, and, and uh, in the most extreme version of this argument, reverse climate change to pre-industrial levels. Mm-hmm. Um, so so, so um, belief in the fermentation process within the cow's stomach. And then when you point out that that same process results in the production of methane or the, the, the emissions of methane, um, they curiously just adamantly deny um, that methane has any kind of um, adverse impact on on uh, on our uh, on, on our atmosphere they're only concerned about carbon they 're not concerned about methane um, so so you know I, I think that um, there is this tendency for people who feel in one way or another alienated from the modern world to seize upon some kind of magical solution whatever that might be right um and so in the case of this community um it's the belief that you know cows are, are they're they're miraculous entities and we, if we just feed them grass and let them graze then somehow all of our problems will be solved uh, yeah. from, from a logical you know point of view it's just it's just too neat too clean too simplistic too too cartoonish to take seriously Um, but I think the fact that so many people believe this is just kind of a sad commentary about modernity.
2: Yeah, and you had made a point uh, in your book, I think you were reiterating uh, someone else's theory about this sort of new um, fascination and obsession with this return to nature uh, and how we're wanting to do this in so many aspects of our lives. Some people might say, you know, urban farming uh, and people raising backyard chickens uh, and how it's sort of this... Um, overcorrection from the information age and the technology age, and how we've become so digitized. I found that part very fascinating.
1: Yeah, it's it's a it's a kind of quest for authenticity, right? Mm-hmm. So. Um, the economist thorsten veblen has this idea of conspicuous consumption the idea that That's it. we buy we buy uh, products like you know armani or our hermes or you know a mercedes benz or whatever not because of their functional utility but because we just want to show off we want to let <laughs> people know We want to convey status, right? And there's something similar going on in the case of um, grass fed meat or um, bone broth. Uh, mm-hmm. You know all these all these um, new new weird foods that are appearing in health food stores that they uh, uh, Andrew Potter calls this conspicuous authenticity mm-hmm. right where you're just trying to put your authenticity on display and let everyone know that you know I'm more I'm more kind of true to nature than you are right? and it just becomes this self radicalizing dynamic and it it turns into a kind of fundamentalist religion I and mean, there's so many different forms of this sort of thing right like. Um, this is a gross example, but the, the um, uh, and I'm sure you've seen this before, the weird popularity of urine therapy.
3: Mm-hmm, I've heard um, of it for
1: sure. <laughs> yeah, um,
3: uh, I have not heard of this. <laughs> Can you fill me in?
1: <laughs> Sorry, say that again.
3: I have not heard of this. Okay, so you it, need to it, fill me in.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's this weird, weird belief that... Um, Again, magical, magical properties in um, in urine. And so there are people who drink it. They'll use it as a nasal spray, um, eye wash and all that sort of thing. Um, and you can find many, many different examples where people are looking for something, again, that has a sort of salvific um, uh, uh, quality to it. And so they've invested a lot of religious faith. For some people, it's urine. For other people, it's it's, it's, it's grass fed.
2: Grass-fed beef. And I find that the interesting part about that is it's it's really the human's take on authenticity. Because when we talk, start talking about the topic of rewilding, then things really get out of hand. I get into so many Twitter debates these days with people trying to decipher what rewilding really means. Uh, and I was in a conversation with um, Jennifer Molador from the Center for Biological Diversity. And she's very smart about this topic on how we keep thinking that by human Humans putting genetically manipulated domesticated animals onto the land that we then exploit, slaughter, sell—that that's somehow wild. Rather than thinking about the original bison or other uh, animals that that grazed the land to begin with, why isn't anybody thinking that that's what would really be the most regenerative way to restore the land?
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, but that's that's too logical, though, right?
2: And it doesn't make anybody any money.
1: Yeah, well, exactly. <laughs> Um, so so and, and you 're right, I mean these animals i love I love cows, I love them they 're beautiful, beautiful animals, harmless, innocent, and so forth, um, but they are not native to the americas they 're not right. native to new zealand they 're not native to Australia. they were forcibly brought here by Europeans, um, and there are some good books about this i 'm planning to write one myself. About the way that um, ranching was a driver of two types of of cleansing, of ethnic cleansing, and then of ecological cleansing. Right. Uh, So, so I mean, they were used to 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 drive out the bison. They were used to justify driving out, you know, the the mass culling of of wolves and other natural predators. Um, So there's just there's no no possible way that. Um, this could be conceived in any, any logical sense as either humane or as um, sustainable or as natural. Uh, it, everything about it, is, um, it, it rests on a certain um, uh, blindness um, to the history of um, animal agriculture in North America. Um, and you're right. You know, if, if, if they really wanted to, you know, return to what things were like in the pre-industrial age, then that's fine. Let's dismantle all the animal farms and let the buffalo roam free. But they wouldn't do that because you're right. There are profits at stake.
2: Right. Right. I, I do think there needs to be far more conversation about colonial, colonialism and cows. Right. Like there's there's so much back history there that people are, like you said, just, you know, willfully blind to.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, what we're seeing in um, the Amazon where ranching is being used to burn the Amazon to the ground, um, drive uh, the indigenous communities that have inhabited the Amazon um, for millennia upon millennia, that process this 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 phenomenon this nightmare of um ecological and ethnic cleansing has already has already happened all across north america over the last few hundred years right um and so you know it's just when, when people talk about grass-fed meat as being um um you know humane and and uh and and sustainable it's just again, it's it rests on this this really kind of unacceptable um, denial of history that I think just needs to be needs to be made explicit and challenged.
2: Well, such fascinating stuff, and it's just a sample of the things that you're going to find uh, parts of in your book, uh, Meat Splaining, which is now widely available. Uh, I saw Amazon, uh, Mcnally Robinson, all the usual places. Um, before we let you go, Jason, I have uh, one more topic I want to talk about, and I think Caitlin. You haven't even yet had a chance
3: to experience Winnipeg Veg Fest, have you? You moved back after the fact, right? Yeah. no, I haven't experienced it. I was excited when I moved back and then the pandemic hit and so yes. in my house. I got to <laughs>
2: attend I got to attend one
3: when I moved back from Europe and I think
2: it was the second or third. How many veg fests have we had here in Winnipeg already?
1: We've had uh Three. We started in 2017, so 2018, 2019. So that was the last one. And yeah, fortunately, we couldn't do it last yes. year because of the pandemic. And there's some possibility that we could do like a mini veg fest this year, but we're trying to see what's going to be permissible.
2: Yes, like like everywhere, but Winnipeg was a little bit little bit late to the VegFest party. There's been you know big ones going on in you know Toronto, Montreal for a long time. Um, so were you there from the very beginning? Were you one of the original creators? That's amazing.
1: Uh, yeah. So so it. Uh, I moved here in 2013, and um, I had been part of the vegan community, you know, for a couple of years, and I just I just I knew that there were so many vegans in the city but everybody seemed really sort of spread out and um and disconnected and you could just tell that there was this craving for for community Uh, so initially you know being an academic i had proposed i had proposed a a conference kind of like the one that um caitlin and i are talking about Um, but 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 uh but you know then then we got the idea of instead of instead of you know a boring conference why don't we make it fun why don't we make it a festival why don't we have a market and vendors and so on and so forth. So that's what we decided to do. Um, so we tried um, sort of getting things going in 2015, and we've. I never, I have never been to a veg fest before, like uh, mm. other than the one that I've organized. So I had no idea what we were even doing, and so it took us <laughs> years. And then 2017, we had our big one, um, and it just turned out to be far, far better than our wildest dreams. We were expecting. You know, we thought we would be lucky. Five hundred people showed up, and we ended up uh, receiving about twenty five hundred.
2: Yeah, it's and it's turned into such a, a great event. The last one I went to, the last one we were able to have, seemed so seamless. The food was incredible. the The, the vendors were incredible. Uh, I got to introduce Anita Cranick. She spoke um, online via Zoom. Uh, amazing, amazing presentation. Uh, we had the guy from from What the Health.
1: Oh, uh, Milton, Dr. Milton
2: Yes, Dr. Milton Mills. He spoke as well. Yeah, we had a, we had amazing stuff. So you guys have really done a great job. And you're right, the vegan community here in Winnipeg is thriving. And we're always giving them shout outs, especially when Caitlin is the, the co-host with me. So thank you for your work on that. And I, I just want to give you guys a shout out too, because you've done such a great job pivoting during the pandemic. We've had some great uh, sort of mini events. Um, right now, as we're recording this, we're in the middle of Sugar Rush, which is a great promotion of uh, vegan desserts across the city, available from different restaurants. Uh, We had another one where we were able to get different dishes, uh, main meal dishes throughout the city. And uh, that was super fun. I ate so much that week. So good for you guys being able to find a way to keep the community together apart.
1: Yeah, thank you. We're having fun with it. And so, yeah, we're, uh, we're really, really enjoying it and just doing our best to keep the vibe and momentum going.
2: Yes, and to keep the restaurants knowing that we're out here and we want all of that food. So,
3: Caitlin, get on it. You got to try some of those desserts this week. (laughs) Yeah, I I was saying I'm not such a dessert person, but some of the photos have me questioning that. I think maybe I do need to try a few. Yes,
2: the cassada from Monats that I had last night. It's got Grand Marnier in it. It's got candied oranges. It's, even if you're a savory person like me, you're going to love it. Uh, thank you so much, uh, uh, Dr. Jason Hannah, for joining us on Paw and Order. Uh, and everybody go out and get meat splaining
1: Thank you for having me. <laughs>
2: Heroes and Zeros. All right. So now we move on to everyone's favorite
3: part of the show. Heroes and Zeros. Heroes and Zeros. All right, Kaylin. So you have our hero for this week. Yeah, our hero this week is Estonia. Uh, So Estonia is now the 14th European country to ban fur farming, which is very exciting. Um, But it's actually the first Baltic country to do so. Mm -hmm. So that's exciting as well. Um, And something that I didn't realize is that uh, after the UK banned and the manufacturing of fur way back when they started to import significant amounts mm-hmm. of fur from Estonia. So between Estonia banning fur farming and then the UK now talking about um, considering a fur import and sales ban, it looks like there's some real progress taking place. And hopefully Canada will catch up one day yes. and
2: also, uh, ban the practice here as well. Oh gosh, if COVID and the and the minks weren't enough, I don't know what it's going to take. But let's let's keep hopeful with that one too. Yeesh. All right. And- And for this week's Zero, we have Willerby Wold Piggery in the UK. So recently, disturbing footage gained by undercover investigators uh, was published showing pigs riddled with disease and dead animals left to rot in overcrowded pens, workers kicking animals at this farm in North Yorkshire in the UK. Um, Why this is particularly notable, not only because the um, footage is so horrific, but also that this farm is used by many major grocery chains in the UK, including Morrison's, Asda, Tesco, Sainsbury's, um, which have all now reportedly suspended working with the farm. And on top of that, this particular farm um, had membership to the food standards organization Red Tractor, which in the UK is considered sort of one of the best food standards, including animal welfare, sort of one of these humane farming labels. Um, so they've revoked the membership, but it took, let's keep note here, that it took the fact that undercover investigators from an animal rights group called Surge had to go in and gain this, um, this footage and this proof. And then the publication, The Independent, which does wonderful work on animal welfare in the UK and all over Europe, then um, aired it, publicized it. So so boo to Willoughby Piggery, but thanks to, to those activists and that publication who made this all public and also boo to egg gag laws, which if in place there would
3: not have allowed for any of this to happen. Yeah, that's for sure. It's pretty scary that you, you, we don't know now what's happening, at least in Ontario and uh, Alberta. So hopefully we can get rid of those laws sometime soon. And on that note, I think that's a great place to end this episode of Paw
2: and Order. Thank you to Caitlin for joining us once once again, as our co-host, and thanks to Dr. Jason Hannon for that wonderful interview. And we'll see y'all next time.
1: We'd like to thank our listeners for tuning in today.
0: We'd love to ask you to subscribe to the Pot and Order podcast using Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, or your other favorite pod catcher. Also, please give a rating because it helps more people find the show. You can also consider supporting us on our Patreon page, Patreon.com/slash Pot and Order, if you like what you hear.
1: You can find me on Twitter at at. Peter Sankoff, or at my website, petersankoff.com.
0: You can find me on Twitter at Jess L. Reed. And you can find me on Twitter at, at Camille Labchuk, that's L-A-B-C-H-U-K. And we always enjoy Twitter conversations about the show or any other animal law or political topics. And finally, we'd like to thank our producer, Shannon Nickerson.
1: See you next time on Paw & Order. For more great iRaw podcasts, visit iRawPod.com. That's I R O A R P O D.com.